Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 6, 2013, and my guest is Doc Searles. He is the co-author of The Clue Train Manifesto. His latest book is The Intention Economy, When Customers Take Charge, and he runs Project VRM at Harvard University's Berkman Center. Doc, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, your book opens um, sometime in the near future when the relationship between buyer and seller has changed and uh, when the economy reflects uh, intention, which is the source of your title, and power or influence perhaps is more in the hands of buyers than it is in sellers. Give me a typical day in the life of a consumer in the intention economy when this um, world may have come to be? Well, firstly, the, uh, I'm going to make clear that the idea with this is, is, is to um, basically extrapolate out into the future what's likely to happen um, as more tools to express intention fall into the hands of customers um, and that businesses build around equipping demand to seek supply and not just for supply to capture and lead demand, which is where most of the marketing efforts uh, have gone for the last 50, 100 years. And, and it's based on, on actual developments going on now um, and that I've helped encourage for the last six years um, through Project VOM uh, at, at Harvard's Berkman Center, where VOM stands for Vendor Relationship Management, which is the customer side counterpart of Customer Relationship Management, which is something most of us know through call centers and junk mail and things like that. And, and, and I see this as not something that's contentious or something where customers are opposed to marketers, but rather where a new symbiosis begins to develop as, as more, more business oriented around what customers actually want rather than around what we can guess that customers want. So um, looking you know, five or ten years out, what, what we see happening, for example, is that individuals will have um, instruments for expressing their intention that probably are going to appear in the form of, of apps that they have and a way to knit together um, apps mostly on their, on their phones and, and pads and things like that. Um, and I, I give the example of, of, um, of a, uh, uh, a woman, in, uh, a middle-class woman in the U.S. Uh, who's traveling with her family, and, uh, and it begins with, with her uh, uh, getting a sleep monitor, which already exists. It's called Zio, um, and it's one of many uh, tools that one can use to do what's called quantified self for monitoring one's own, one's own uh uh, diet and, and exercise and health data and stuff like that. And, and in the course of this, she, uh, she, she experiences um, uh, the ability to set her own terms. This is something that's, that we're working on now, which is you know, how we have these really onerous um, uh, terms that we always just click, click through and never read. Because yeah, they, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I agree, exactly. That's, all I, that's the part I read where it says, I agree. Yeah, that in and, the little box, I read the part that says "I agree." 
that I and it says actually it says I agree and I've read all this garbage and you're, I, I do sometimes check the box without reading the garbage. I have to confess. Actually, I don't think I've ever read the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. And um, oh, there's something I'm trying to remember her name that I spoke to yesterday at, at his at Stanford. Um, uh, and and she she did a study which found that we would we would spend you know half half the time that we spend on the web um, uh, today would be taken up by actually reading these things if we actually bothered to read them because yeah. the, the volume of prose in them is so high. Well, this is this is this is friction in the marketplace. This is this is very inefficient and. And it's also, you know, it's a convenience that we came up with on the sell side because we could not engage in in ceremonies that would be involved if freedom of contract were um, a, a practice and not just an ideal. Um, and and that's uh, and 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 this is not a hard thing to do. We should be able to assert our own terms. Most of the terms that we had, we would have, would we be able to assert them? Would not necessarily be onerous to. To sellers, it would be like what we have when we're in a you know in a public marketplace. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to steal your stuff. I'm not going to act badly in your in your store. Um, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, whatever whatever it might be. And in in today's world, and, and we can take these piece by piece because it, in the in the um, in that chapter, I unpack the pretty much the whole book in, in, a, in a scenario. But, but, the, but this particular one is, is I think, the biggest problem that we have, which is, which is that we have these one-sided non-agreements that we make that might make for a much more efficient marketplace if they really were two-sided. And, um, and it's not hard to do. All we have to do is have machine-readable code on both sides that, that express goodwill and some simple intentions, one of which um, would be, is likely to cause some, you know, some, some uh, uh, tightening of orifices <laughs> with, with people on the sell side, which is, um, I would like to have my own data back when we're done with this uh, transaction, or I would like and have it in, in a form that I can read, or you can't follow me around with uh, with cookies and beacons and other things like that, which which is now pro forma on the web. And we have these. Um, but is yeah, is the, is the is the question here just a question of opting in or opting out? So right now, <clears throat> generally, uh, I have to opt out if I don't want to be followed around. I have to say stop. You know, you can't take, you can't use cookies. You can't follow me. Uh, the default is is you can. So in the current world, I have to kind of, I have to be active to, to get them to stop. Are you just suggesting that it should be active on their part, that they get my permission to, to follow me around and to I, do I, stuff with my data? Yes, but, but not active in a way that's more complicated automatically than what we get with a, with, a, uh, with a web page right now. There is, in fact, a dialogue that happens between your browser and a website. Your browser says... Give me a web page, <laughs> and the website says, "Here, have a web page." And what's going on also is the um, the, the 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 website says, um, "We're going to give you a whole bunch of cookies along with this, but we're not going to tell you about it." Um, and that that is done routinely anyway. And it's, cookies, and done, explain for, for non-tech sure. people, cookies are just uh, markers that say, "I've been there." 
there are actually little little files. They are they are text files generally, um, and the text file um, was originally intended by the guy who designed them, named Lou Montuli at uh, Netscape back in the middle '90s, as as a way for a site to keep track of what's called state, which is this is what this is where we were the last time you visited. We this is how, of course, when you go to Amazon, it remembers what you have in your um, in your uh, my card uh, in your card and and what you looked at last time. And they they are they are a perfectly fine convenience and most of the time we like them because and most of the time I don't, like, I don't we, have to start from scratch. Well, we like what they do, um, but but they're you know we're really stuck in 1995 um, in in this sense. Uh, uh, there's a uh, one of the VRM developers, uh, Phil Windley, who's doing really great pioneering work. We might talk about later. Um, has a really great slide presentation in which he gives the history of e-commerce. He says 1995, invention, invention of the cookie, the end. We sort of stopped there. And and the thing is that you know right now, as you said, we're our only choice is to opt out. We and, and which is to say, not use the site at all or not use the service at all. And that's not really a realistic choice for most of us if we want to use the web. So what we're trying to do is just put some of the responsibility for this automated dialogue on the customer side or on the user side. And it's not a hard thing to do. The 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 ritual that we might have or the ceremony and or protocols, you know, pro, these terms are actually used in computing is is one where uh, the user's uh, browser says, here are my terms. <laughs> They're, you know, take a, take a look at the, have your machine, take a look at my machine's terms. And the other side's machine says, oh, good, that matches up and we can move forward. Or it doesn't, and if it doesn't, then it'll flag those things that don't agree, and we can either opt in or opt out or whatever. But the development that's going on so far is toward the creation of those terms and toward um, symbols, for example, that show you whether the terms match up or not. And uh, one of the things they talk about in that chapter is what we call the R button. And the R button is simply two, two symbols. They're actually logical symbols that look like sideways U's, the, the, the letter U, that look like magnets facing each other, which we think represents the way a marketplace works. We have a buyer and a seller who are naturally attracted to each other. And if they hook up and transact business or develop a relationship, it would be nice to have a symbolic representation of that. And these are very simple and straightforward and can be represented by either being, you know, a color or a solid um, or, or gray, but could just simply fall into the portfolio of other familiar symbols that, you know, tell you things like there's Wi-Fi here or... Refresh know. this page is a little mark. Exactly. <clears throat> but these... Yeah. these um these inverted uh, magnets, that are fa- these magnets that are facing each other, this little symbolic idea that you have, what would be the significance of, say, different colors or being gray versus black? What, what would they connote um, or denote? What would they denote that would be useful to this relationship? Well, the first is, and, and I think this might be the, the most important, would be if it's, and this is, and again, this is something we're developing. It's not something that's done. Um, there, there are developers working on this. But if if it's a solid color and um, we've called it red uh, or, or R button and red only because that was the color of the of the of the marker that I used on the whiteboard when we first were talking about this, but but let's say it, it turns green or it just turns a solid color for the colorblind among us, which are significant. Um, but it turns solid, it means 
when you go to a site and you see that little sideways U, the site's R button, and it's solid, it means they are open to your terms. doesn't mean they accept your terms, but they're open to them. If it's solid on both sides, it means, oh, our terms match up. And if the two sides are joined, it means, oh, we already have a relationship. So let's say if we go to Amazon and we have a relationship with Amazon and our terms have been have proven agreeable in the first place, then we see the two matched up and, and joined together. So they form like two links in a chain or something like that, or two, you know, two, two magnets like actually joined to each other. It's, it's open yet at this point whether or not the two sides will actually join simply for for development reasons. But would it be better to have, have them always separate and just light up or not lit up? These are all considerations that are on the table right now and, you know, we'll keep talking about. But but, but, but here's is, the question, Doc. Don't, sure. don't, isn't this something right now that only people at the Harvard University Berkman Center care a lot about? And there are a few others. I don't mean to suggest it's a Cambridge, Massachusetts phenomenon. But most of us, perhaps foolishly, most of us just... Go about our business. We let Amazon take our information. We let Google take our information. When iTunes revises itself and sends me that awful revised I agree thing, I just stupidly click it. And am I being stupid? I mean, most people, I think, just they like the way the Internet works right now. Is it? And, sure. and I would suggest that what keeps companies from exploiting this, uh, and may, maybe they already exploit it in ways that I don't know about that it would really upset me, but I'm just not paying enough attention. But Mainly what exp- what protects me from them is, is their reputation. If Amazon did some really awful things with my data or with my computer, I'd want to not go there anymore and I'd stop buying from them. And isn't that right now what keeps them from exploiting this relationship? And do I really want to click all those – pay attention every time that thing turns gray or – which is going to be a lot if they're going to be changing their terms every once in a while, which they usually do. How is that going to work? Well, first um – you know, sure, we've, we've all acquiesced to the norms um, in the marketplace now, and I'm not saying they're bad, necessarily, as, as norms go. Um, they are, they're just early. You know, they're, they're, we, we, we found something in 1995 that worked pretty well, um, but have, are actually stuck. You know, I think that a lot more opportunity will start to open up when, when for example, we start coming with our own data. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about big data, and I, I deal with it in the book to some degree. Um, which, and as always with almost every new computing movement, is something that's discussed and imagined out as something only big companies do. But let's say once we're once we're in charge of our own healthcare data, we're in charge of our own financial data in in ways that are coherent, and we can manage them very easily. And we bring those to the marketplace, and and we can establish relationships based on what we're bringing to the table, and not just what the other side allows us to bring to the table. Well, let's let's go back yeah. to your let's go back to your traveling uh, uh, woman, which I think will help us put this in context, because there's a yeah. nice example at the beginning. So she wakes up, she's got this uh, sleep monitor on her, and um, so she's monitoring her own sleep, and she wakes up refreshed because she's gotten up at a good time with respect to her. Uh, her uh, sleep patterns, and she's going to tr- take a trip that day, right? Yeah. So tell yeah. us what happens to her. <clears throat> I see. I'm, I'm actually looking at the book as as, as we're talking. So, um, I, and I want to go back and say, by the way, that 
there are very few people in Cambridge at, at Harvard that actually care about the work that I've been doing here. <laughs> it's, it is not because they're, they, they don't care. They, they certainly care that the work is going on. But mostly what we've done is encourage this development out all over the world. And I understand. Most of it's actually happening in Europe or on the West Coast or in Salt Lake City and places like that. I hear you. Um, so, so um, and, and, and this legal thing is just basically a small hurdle. And, and, and I, I'd, I'd like to treat it with the uh, lack of full respect it deserves because it's just, it's a bug right now. There are bugs in that system and we need to debug the system. And so we're working on debugging the system. Uh, the main thing is that, that, that she's in charge of her data and she's, and she has, um, a relationship with, or relationships with what we're starting to call fourth parties, um, which are, which are third parties that are working for us, or in this case for her, that, that, that are like, that serve the same role for her data that a bank serves with, with our money, which is to say, it's an intermediary. Uh, it's an, an, an intermediary. And, and, and it does some of the heavy lifting in, in, uh, in, in, in uh, casting out an intention. So if, 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 and in the book, we call this a personal RFP, um, which is a, a, a business, a business term, but, uh, which stands kind of, for request for proposal, for proposal, uh, an RFQ is another one request for quote in the case of, um, but what's happened since the book came out is that the term intent casting has emerged <laughs> among VRM developers, which is, you know, she can cast an intent on, on her phone for, for coffee, for example, like I'm, I'm traveling and I think a lot of us have thought of this from time to time that, you know, rather than going on our phone and saying, let's see, let's go to Google and see search for coffee, search for coffee or whatever. Um, uh, I actually have a Starbucks app for my wife. It's not for me. I'm not a big coffee drinker, doc, but my wife is a big coffee drinker. So I, and she doesn't have a smartphone, so I have a Starbucks app <laughs> on my smartphone when we're traveling together for her. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, and, and actually, the, the idea for this came up when we were traveling across the country from Santa Barbara to to Boston, and and and, and my wife also is a bigger coffee drinker than I am. I, I love coffee, but my body can't handle more than a little bit of it for some reason, and and so and and we were thinking about well, what what would work here, and it would be you know what I want to I want um. A, a short double cappuccino, a short dry double cappuccino, two exits up. And just put that intention out there and have the market find me rather than I'm finding somebody in the marketplace. So I'm not, I don't have to, now right now, of course, you could do this with Google Maps. And Google Maps, by the way, is a miraculous program and, and in, in many ways. But it's all about the sellers trying to find buyers. What about the buyers trying to find the sellers? Um, well, let's, let's equip that. So, so what this woman does in this case is that, you know, she basically orders a cappuccino ahead of, you know, ten minutes from ten minutes from now in a particular ten place. Now it's ready. She can drive through, pick it up. They only know about her what they need to know about her. But, but because she's very loyal to Pete's Coffee, which by the way we are, because <laughs> it's 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 by far the best of the of the chains. Um, they know about that. Um, they know that she's loyal already because she's told them she's loyal, not because she carries a Pete's loyalty card. And, and that's a, that's a, a bit of a state change because there's the norm today is we have loyalty, these loyalty cards, but the loyalty cards are all about, or mostly about, um, the stores trying to trap you and, you know, raise your switching costs, they call it, and other inconveniences like that. And so they can maintain 
data about you, which is valuable data, but you know, we have data about them too, and that's valuable data uh, to us. So, and that's where a fourth party can help us put things together if we're willing to pay for that. And there are a number of companies out there that are betting, betting that you will, but, but what this forms is, is genuine relationships that, that rather than, than, um, rather than coerced ones. And, and, and so that's one of the dreams that I've had about the free marketplace for some time, which is what, what happens when we're, we have much more genuine and fewer coerced relationships, what starts to arise out of that? Um, is it just because I've got a, a personal pricing gun, um, which if you look at a pricing gun, that's not something a customer uses. You, <laughs> there's that old, um, uh, oh, I forget his name, but the, the, the comedian, oh, uh, Stephen Wright, you know, he says, I, you know, I, I went, I, I, you know, I, I held up a store by going around with a pricing gun and marking down everything in the place. Right. Right. It's, it's that, you know, we're not used to having these things, but what, what's, we are going to have them. We are going to be able to say, I'm willing to pay this or I'm willing to so pay price, that. So Priceline has a little bit of this. And just, just to take a kind of a silly example, yeah. uh, Siri is, is the, the Apple app. You, know, you, can, you can talk to your smartphone now and say, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry. And Siri, it's, it's still, the direction still a particular kind, but Siri then um, delivers you a bunch of choices Right, but but they're not the choices aren't known to the choosers. I mean, to the recipients, the, the the restaurants that it tells me about, they don't know they're being chosen by Siri. And you're suggesting a world where I would say into my phone, I would intent cast, I'm hungry, and a bunch of restaurants would start waving opportunities at me, knowing and having a relationship with me from the past that we had agreed on. That's the idea of it, right? Yeah, that's that's part of it. Sure, I mean, I, I think it's the the main idea is what happens when we can advertise our interests and intentions. Um, whether it's very specific, such as you know, I I want the double cappuccino, or whether it's very vague, such as I'm hungry. Um, you know, obviously, as you say with Siri, which I don't have on my phone, I, I haven't. I don't either. One channel is I have an iPhone four, and not one of the more recent ones. But yeah, but me too. As, as I understand it, um, it, it you know it, it, it's still the the portfolio of knowledge that it has is you know except for I'm hungry on the customer side, all these things that it either guesses at or may know because you know because Apple or somebody has a relationship with um, with uh, um, you know with 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 these companies you know they're they're basically they're drawing entirely from the sell side of the marketplace. And and my my belief and the belief of a number of other developers is that we can match a lot more up if if there's more data and there's more granularity of the ability to express intent on the customer side than we have now. And so let's let's play with that. So so if um and there are lots of ways that that can that can play out. And I mean the the, the easy and trivial examples are. You know, what well, well, it's like Priceline. The problem with Priceline is that I have to use Priceline. What if I didn't have to use Priceline? What if I could use anybody? That's that's the main thing. I mean, right right now we're sort of stuck in Jay, the the world that Jay Walker built when he designed Priceline in the first place, which though it's very good, we say, well, you know, if Priceline in a way was 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 invented to to overcome the limits of of orbits and um, 
and uh, Travelocity and all those, which, by the way, were invented to overcome the limits of United Airlines and and uh, American right. Airlines <laughs> separately and alone. Well, well, what if you know? What if I, you know, if you take the airline example, um, I have this arcane interest as an, as an, a very frequent flyer, which is I love window seats. I like I like them well in front or behind the wing. Um, I want to be on the shady side of the plane, and I'm actually willing to pay for that. I'm actually willing to pay for the window seat that I want. And but that doesn't really fit in any of the airlines' um, existing systems. They know that I'm United knows alone knows that I'm a frequent flyer, a frequent enough flyer that I should get a premium seat or be eligible. Excuse me, eligible for an an automatic upgrade to business class if they haven't filled business class already, which is kind of the default that they have. But there's some conditions where I have to overcome. I have to work at it. For example, um, I'm I'm not a tall guy. I'm an average sized guy, and I don't have long legs, so I can sit in the back of the plane. I don't need the premium seating if I'm not using my my laptop, which I often am not. Um, so, uh, but with United, for example, which is my main airline, all their triple sevens have the premium seats over the wing. Well, I can't see the ground over the wing. I don't want to sit over the wing. I want to sit in the back. I'm willing to pay for that. And but their protocol is different. But the interesting thing is, what if I can send out the economic signal that I'm willing to pay for these seats, guys? You know, and for that matter, I don't have to be with United. I can be with some other airline if they give me what I want. And right now, what we want is something that the airlines guess at based on very big data, which they've been using for a very long time, and statistics that work entirely for their convenience where they really block out all possibility of extraneous input from customers. And I'm sure there are many who would say, you know, it's going to be too much trouble for them to actually embrace that extraneous input. But my belief is that there's enough really good signaling in there that they might change those systems incrementally once they start opening up to it. And that's that's really where one of the directions that we're pushing with this stuff, which is... If, if my fourth party maintains a list of all the intentions that I have that are like the airline thing or maybe like the weird cappuccino or some other thing, and, and I can make that available to the sellers in the marketplace and others also make it available so that the sellers in the marketplace can look at that data and say, well, wait a minute, it turns out there really are a lot more people that want window seats than we thought, um, and we can make adjustments based on that. So it's really, you know, what we're, the, the beat that we're working here is economic signaling, really, and, and enriching it on the customer's side rather than keeping it impoverished, which is what we've had for the last 150 years when mass marketing kind of ruled the world, but the Internet really challenges in a lot of ways. Yeah, I love the idea. I, th- I think the the... I think the best way for me to think about it is who's advertising to whom, right? So in the current world, you walk down the street and people are waving stuff at you. Buy me, buy me, use me, come in here. And you're suggesting a world where I say, uh, appeal to me, right? I'm Here's what I'm interested in. Make make me an offer. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the Priceline example is a good example because – Priceline, which I don't use, by the way, but um, for a bunch of reasons, but they created a playground for buyers and sellers to interact in a different way than they did in other playgrounds. 
And as you said, it's because it's a playground, it's got a gate around it and you have to play in their playground. And people who play in the playground play under their rules and there's pluses and minuses of that. You're imagining a world where it's a little more open. And that really, to me, brings us to this fascinating question of uh, you know, where does innovation take place in the internet? How open or closed? People are very upset, get very worked up over uh, – you know, how we access here. And I'm going to read you a quote from your book that I think uh, captures this. You're talking about the commons. You introduce the idea of a commons. You say these type of commons, you're talking about physical commons, which had retained their essential qualities since Saxon times, came to a tragic end, destroyed by enclosure and similar takings by government and commercial interests. The commons lost when industry won the Industrial Revolution. Yet the sense of what a commons is and what it is for survives in culture and makes sense of a common pool resource that is not by nature limited in the nature of Hardens, referring to uh, Garrett Harden. Yet still might be made tragic by those who would enclose it with contrived finitudes, say minutes or channels for their own parochial purposes. This is the risk of subordinating the Internet to telephony and cable television, both of which the Internet transcends and subsumes by design yet both of which funnel internet access and contain use within legacy telephone and cable company facilities, provisioning, and business models. And here's the key question. So how can we respect these manorial, manorial companies' needs to innovate and cause market growth as only they can while still protecting the worldwide commons we mostly access by their grace and which to some degree they already consider at least partially enclosed for their own purposes? Uh, so th the question there is, you know, we get on the internet using – Comcast or Verizon or whatever place we, we go through, when we're on the internet, we're inside these little places, Amazon or Priceline. And it seems to me that those, those restrictions are necessary to allow people to make the investments to make things better. How, how are we going to balance that problem, as you said? How do we – they have a natural desire to make money, and that's what they do, and they make investments expecting to make money. So they're going to expect things to be kind of closed. How do we make them more open along the lines that you're imagining? Well, in the, in the book, I give the um, examples of uh, um, Apple and Google with smartphones and, and how there really is a, an amazing symbiosis between two approaches that are orthogonal in the sense that Apple's been Apple with its iOS um, operating system and with its very closed, tightly controlled vertical environment, highly verticalized um, vector. They, they move vertically with that. And, and, and Google's horizontal one with Android. You know, we're going to... And uh, Google said, well, we're going to invent Android and Android can be used by any manufacturer. So there are many Android phones where there's only one Apple phone. And we're going to open the marketplace horizontally. And and I actually see these as kind of like two Etch-a-Sketch dials. You know, one is very proprietary and very vertical and does what you can only do in the vertical dimension, and which is you are controlling things. You do have your patents and you do exercise your intellectual property uh, um, uh, claims and, and you do try to enclose some things while at the same time Others, or even yourself in some ways, are going to open it up horizontally. Um, and there are many ways that Apple works the horizontal thing as well. They're, they actually do contribute to open source uh, code bases. They actually do use open standards and things like that. There's always 
it, it, I don't see it so much as a tug of war, though often there is a war of words, and there is a war of lawsuits and things like that, but, but as, as really two, two complementary um, urgings and strategies uh, or strategic choices that, that, that individual um, companies can make and that the market makes together somehow um, that, that work out better for everybody because both those impulses are, are respected and exploited. So, so, and, and, and I think that, you know, again, I, like, as I said earlier, earlier, we're, we're, we're very early in this, in the, in the development of the internet. I mean, the internet that we know today showed up really in 1995 with the graphical browser and the first commercial websites and, and commercial ISPs. Um, the, the first of which, by the way, we're, we're very horizontal. <laughs> you know, you can, anybody can be our customer. You can come and go as you please. There are no contracts and or minimal contracts. And, and, and now an ISP means a phone company or a cable company. Um, and the old ISPs are mostly gone. Um, and, and those new ISPs that are very controlling and really very much want to verticalize the marketplace and control it for their own purposes are, are, you know, are, you know, acting as monopolists, and and that's there are people who, like my good friend Susan Crawford, has a, a great new book out on on this um, called Captive Audience. Um, you know, wants wants government relief for uh, thinks that you know there there is excessive market power here. It's straddling innovation. It needs um, you know there there is no competition for it right now in most in most places. Uh, you know, I can only choose Time Warner if I'm here where I am in New York. And, most people can only really choose from one cable company. So why is that, though? Well, well, they, well it's, I don't know why is, which that are we talking about? Because the fact that that. there's only one. And you said all the other ISPs disappeared. Why? What? I mean, the part I I'm not an expert on this, and I find it a bit bewildering. And I you know I read um, I, I don't I read a little bit about Susan Crawford's argument where she says things like, you know, Comcast makes investments and expects to make profit, as if that's somehow outrageous. But that's what. They do. That's what we want them to do. We want them to have yeah. a profit incentive. So I don't, I don't understand what's sinister. Help me understand what's sinister about the fact that there are companies trying to make, say, the internet faster so that I can get more broadband. Uh, well, where's the lack? And where's the, what's the barrier to competition that allow, that allows them to exploit me as they move forward in that way? Well, there's, well, as it developed, um, if you wanted um, high-speed internet uh, at any point in time um, on, on a, a landline, you had to get it from the cable company. You, you, the only phone company you could get it from was, uh, was um, Verizon. And in, in places where there really is competition, um, that, that is a, a wonderful grace. I mean, in, in the apartment that we, we have in, in, uh, in Massachusetts, I chose because I saw three different kinds of fiber on the poles outside of the house, and and we have a Verizon files there. Um, it has uh, um, twenty five megabits in both directions, um, and including upstream. And I upload a lot of photos, and so I wanted. And, and there was competition there that we chose Verizon over RCN because Verizon had high, much higher speed upstream than RCN had. And Comcast was not a player um, at that time because Comcast couldn't offer the upstream speed that we wanted. And we didn't care about TV. 
So, so there's there there was you know a, a bit more of a you know a complete marketplace in the sense that there were several competitors, but in most places those. That doesn't exist. There's a cable company. Why? So <clears throat> why aren't there more? Well, was, well, why isn't just, Verizon competing in New York City for well, your business? Uh, well, actually, for, oh boy, this is really complicated, and and it'd be great to have Susan tell you what she thinks about this because I think it would be an interesting conversation. But but I think the you know the, the reason is that you know that they are in the streets right now um, uh, outside my house. At the moment, uh, I've actually. T- Talk to a lot of people at Verizon. Uh, the most interesting ones of which are the guys on the street that will tell you what's actually going on rather than their marketing people who will say, well, you know, call this number or leave a, you know, leave a, fill out this web page, you know, or something. But the real reason that they're not giving it to us right now is that Sandy knows them and that they're way behind on everything that they're trying to repair on the south side of town. But they made a deal. And they made a deal with... Um, and I don't know what the deal was, but they stopped expanding Fios. They stopped enlarging the Fios footprint. We are in the Fios footprint in New York, but they are not rolling out fiber anywhere else in the country right now. And that that decision that they made, as I understand it, was coincidental with them doing a deal with Comcast or one of the other cable companies for more wireless spectrum, so that they can they can expand what they're doing with wireless and. What's, what they're doing is in verticalizing the marketplace, they bought NBC Universal. So, what they want to do, one would assume, is 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 basically you know make certain things available. But basically, the, the, the fear is that they will bias the internet. They will they will they will turn the internet into television. They're a TV company in that sense. Comcast is a TV company. They're a TV distribution company. They did not invent the internet. They are not. They are not the ones whose innovations caused the internet to exist. They are the ones that are, that provided the pipes that made high speed delivery of those capacities available to us. But they are not the. But their their historic impulses have been toward limiting what you could do rather than maximizing what you could do. But to the many, extent they do that, yeah. To the extent they do that, they make me unhappy. <laughs> And and they and they I understand there's I understand where, the monopolists. Where, can, where can you go? You know, if you <clears throat> if you're in a monopoly, where can you go if you have well, no other choice? No, I agree with that. I I, I just the part. Uh, let's let's move on. But I just want to let me just make an observation, and then uh, this is probably again we've touched on this a number of other podcasts, and it's it's probably a subject for its own podcast by itself. But it, it just strikes me that I know how incredibly regulated this market is. Uh, the FCC is deeply involved in this, trying to steer it constantly. So I find it weird when people complain it's not a free market. So I don't know. It's a complex system. I'm not quite sure what's holding a better world back, and I'm not sure I want the government trying to design one. That's all I'm going to say. I'll let you say – you can say one other thing in response to that, then I want to move on. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm in agreement with that. I, I, um, I did my I, – devoted a whole section of the book to this topic because I, I believe the internet is, is like the best thing that ever happened to the free marketplace. It's just, I think it's, it is probably the biggest thing since movable type and or money and may, or money. Or money, or money <laughs> or, you know, yeah, exactly. Coinage, but, paper yeah, money. 
<laughs> I mean, it and you know, and credit. I mean, you know, credit and credit cards, and the ability to use credit and all that. That's these are all great things. And and the internet just it it puts in the middle of the marketplace an opportunity for countless connections and efficiencies and signal exchanges and the rest of it. And 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 there there is much to be gained by betting on that, which is what Google has done. And and when Google did this thing, and this is what they did with Android, they they didn't they didn't Google would not do what 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 Verizon and AT and T and most of the other um, duopolists that are out there that have tended to do, which is to offer something freely with with very little constraint on it, um, in faith that they would get what they call second and third order effects, and and that and they've gotten those, you know the they created a much bigger marketplace for smartphones than we would ever have if Apple alone offered what it does. And let's say if if Samsung came along and said, okay, here's our phone, and it's just as locked as Apple's phone, and we have a choice between Apple's locked phone and Samsung's locked phone, and we're totally locked into either one of those systems, and they can barely get along with each other. Instead, we have this incredibly vast and varied marketplace where they're actually, there's a, up, up the hill, there's a, there's a, a place that looks like I haven't checked it out totally, but they, they, it vends Android phones. You can you can push a button and get an Android phone. I mean, that's an amazing thing, and and that's because Google decided to bet on the horizontal to say, let's open this marketplace. Let's let's do what we can do to make to make you know as many flowers bloom as possible, rather than to operate this private. Playground, and, and that's not that they don't operate private playgrounds. They do. They have many private playgrounds yeah. that are theirs alone. So, so I think there's a there's a symbiosis between these things, and we don't have it yet with with the internet. The the problem with the internet right now is we don't know what it is. We really don't. We don't have a common vocabulary. If you're talking about it, it's why we talk past each other. Um, it's why the conversations happening within the phone companies and then within. The regulatory bodies like the FCC and what are happening among the pro-internet people, which are the ones that I tend to hang out with, they're, they're very, very different. I just came from the Freedom to Connect conference in, in Washington, and, and the crowd that was there has very little in common with the with, with, with – um, and in common I'm talking about in frames of reference and assumptions and vocabulary and the rest of it – with those that are operating – the, the phony cable companies. They're, it's just not there. Like, you know, I call them netheads and bellheads, but what, and, and that's to some degree what they also call themselves, but they're totally different mentalities and coming from very different places. And, and the interesting thing is that the ones playing the free market card, as it were, and know how to talk that jive are the, are the phone and the cable companies, and, and, and they're saying, we're the free marketplace. But they're busy trying to close as much as, and close as much of that marketplace as they can. And my case to them is, wait a minute, guys, do the Google thing. <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, look at how much more can be gained in the marketplace if you are part of the rising tide that lifts all economic boats, rather than trying to run canals across the ocean that this internet was designed to be in the first place. Yeah. So, and, so this is this comes back to my. my Last comment, which was going to be my last comment. Now, obviously, it's not. But so, you know, and we, and I've talked about this before on the program. It, it fascinates me that people have emotional, uh, ideological feelings about Google and Apple. And, and now your, your discussion of it really helps me understand it better. So, for example, 
I, I like Apple a lot, but a lot of people think they're evil because they're closed. And my answer has always been, well, don't buy their products. And as you point out, there's lots of choices. I think the problem with this issue of NetHead versus Bellhead, which is this issue of telephone cable versus some other model, is that if you don't think you have a choice, then it is really a bad problem. So again, I think it comes back to this issue. There's nothing that stops uh, another Apple-like firm from creating a closed system, and it would have to compete with Apple and Android and everybody else. And Google is free to offer its product, which some people prefer, a lot of people do. And my view is in a marketplace, that's great. Choose the, you can choose the more open experience or the more closed experience because you trust the person who's closed it for you. You like Steve Jobs' aesthetic. You like his vision. You understand there's cost to it, but they're worth it. So which to me, the, this view that says, oh, please, cable company, phone company, be more like Google. My answer is, my first answer is, well, that's kind of up to them. And if you disagree, start your own. But if there are regulatory barriers to starting your own or other barriers that we could imagine, we could talk about how important they are, fixed costs, et cetera. But if those are the problems, uh, there's a big difference between those two stories. That's all I'm saying. And, I, and that really helps. Your, your examples really help me understand that. Uh, there are, in fact, regulatory barriers. And there, there is a, a very high degree of regulatory capture in 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 telecommunications, that most of the former FCC chairmen and and you know are now now work for you know federal cable companies, and it's 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 a you know the revolving door is there, and and you know there's a, a very tight coupling between between those, and 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 it does lock out a lot of the innovations that are possible. And you know, I mean, I, I don't I don't I don't know how one competes with a standing cable company. Um, in in a place like New York, if I if I wanted to do what I would love to do in New York, um, I don't know how to do that. I, if I don't know how to make another Verizon that would do what I would like Verizon to actually do, but but what I would but rather than demonize Verizon or demonize any of those, I I, I want to I want to talk to them and say, look at what you're not doing, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. and look at you know. It, you know, don't just talk about choice, but give people more choice than they've got right now. We don't. Most people don't want to choose between Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You know, they they want to choose between between Apple and Android. You know, <laughs> or they want to choose between Android One and Android Two. I mean, that was the, the amazing thing about the Androids is that you can have lots of different Androids, and and that's and I saw that with Linux as well. You know, the 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 irony about Linux. Um, is that it was seen as this sort of, um, uh, you know, with back to nature, uh, lefty, um, you know, kind of thing. But in fact, it was it was about as brutal a meritocracy as you could possibly imagine. You know that that if you're not getting any any code. It doesn't matter how well you know somebody if your code's not getting into that code base, unless it makes the code base better. Um, and and then, but Linux is designed to work for everything and and it's designed and there are lots of you know eric raymond who's been on your show and is a, a good friend of mine does a, a really makes a really good case for this he's a, a hardcore free market libertarian who who sees in 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 linux something that makes the market bigger and and makes it work better and that's basically what i'm trying to do with vlm as well i mean it is just to open things up um but you know as for the regulatory side boy it's just a it's a it's a more, it's a morass, and and but I, I I'm an optimist. I'm you know I, I I see the almost empty glass as 
you know, one one hundredth full. So <laughs> that's kind of what Good for my you. attitude is toward toward um, what can happen here. But but there are you know there are bad actors and there are bad impulses and you know that we confront everywhere. And as long as choice can be presented, that's just an awesome thing. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, sure. You've got a – I like uh, a description you have called uh, NEA, <clears throat> the initials NEA. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody owns it. That's the N. E is everybody can use it, and the A is anyone can improve it. Uh, so that would be language, uh, which is a wonderful emergent phenomenon we've talked about before on the program. So language, nobody owns the English language. You're, anybody can use it freely, and you can improve it if you can think of a new word. Um, then um, it gets added to it, and that's the way it goes. It moves forward. It's alive. Uh, how do such things flourish on the Internet? Well, the Internet basically grew out of that, that impulse, the, the, um, and so did, so did Linux and the entire open source yep. and free software world. Um, and, and actually, NEA is just my, uh, my summary of it, you know, that there is this stuff that uh, a lot of it is owned, but it's not. It's owned like you know, an open commons is owned. In, in the it's sense not exclusive. Anybody, yeah, it's not. It's exactly. It's not exclusive. And and um, and I've just enjoyed looking at what these things are and what they and and, and what they make possible in the world. And I've, and I've studied the you know the first the free software world and the, and the open source world. And even with languages, language is an interesting thing. There are two things to look at here. One is that um, we were not talking about open source between. Before February 1998, uh, Eric and and a bunch of other uh, advocates got together and decided that we are going to start talking about open source, and open source is going to become part of the lexicon that we use to understand this kind of code and what it does in the world. And now it's one of those things that nobody owns, everybody can use, and everybody does use, and anybody can improve. If any one of us wants to improve the way open source is understood, um, that that's a possibility, and that that's true with words as as well. Somebody told me, and I and I, I really hope maybe somebody in the audience can can remark on this in in uh, uh, on the blog when when we're done. But I have been told that English one reason English has proliferated is that it is unusually accepting of new words and of new of of, of not just neologisms, but but new forms of usage and new conventions and and other more formalized languages like French, for example, are, you know, the, the, not only the culture, but the government and others are, are very conscious about what words are admitted into the language and which are not. I mean, it's impossible to fully control that, but they're, but they're you know, French, you might say, is more verticalized than, than, yeah. than, than English is. Well, and, you know, the, the French, I've, I've written about this and I've talked about on the program, but the... The French actually have a committee as to what is good French. Um, and it's the Academy, uh, I think it's the Academy Francaise. And uh, the, the people who are members of that committee, I, this is my favorite thing about this. I have a few favorite things, but this is one of them, which is uh, they're called Les Immortals, the Immortals. <laughs> a modest name. Uh, it, it really takes <laughs> academic credentialism to a new height. And so these are the Immortals. Um, and uh, they decree... That a Friday and Saturday are called uh, fin de semaine, which means end of the week. But the people in France call it le weekend, despite that committee's um, <laughs> insistence. And so, but but I take your point, and I think it's a cultural point. I don't think it's a 
literally a control point by the the academy. I think it's uh, just maybe French culture is different than American culture or British culture, but it's clear that English, the English language, all languages are alive is my point, but the English language is particularly alive. It is, and 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 I think as more other cultures fall into it, um, that it becomes more alive. There, I, I bring up briefly in the book the uh, Jeffrey West case about cities, and he, he taught, I don't know if you've ever had him on the show. I have not. Um, it, it, he'd be worth having. He has a just for this one question that he asks. It's on a TED talk, and that's Jeffrey with a G. Jeffrey, he's a physicist, and he asked this question, why do cities live while companies die? And his case is that, and he studied this, that um, companies tend to be closed systems and cities are open systems, and markets also as parts of cities and city-like things are uh, being open are, are, are not only very admitting of new things, but but you have many more connections between between things and processes and cultures and and the rest of it, and uh, and things move faster. I mean, he one of the things he says, I believe, in another talk is that he can tell you what city, you can tell what city somebody is from, or you know, if you give give him, I think the the av- the average pace at which people move, he can tell you what city they're from. It's the Henry Higgins of uh, of uh, of movement. Yeah, right? something like Henry that. Higgins and My Fair Lady. Say a few yeah. words. He can tell you where you grew up. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. And and and. Um, and, and that bigger cities, people move faster in. And being in New York now, is, it, it, it is faster than Boston and faster than San Francisco. And and we're all in, it's not just that we're in more of a hurry, but there's just more energy coming into what we're doing and, and coming from more places and more directions. And and even 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 when there are interesting pauses, like we always have in cities, like, where are we going to eat? Well, are we doing Chinese tonight? Are we doing something else? Are we going to stop and look at our, poke at our phones while we're looking at Yelp or some other thing to see what the ratings are of at, at different restaurants. That there's there's many more inputs and outputs in in cities, and and this is why open source has grown the way it has. It's why free software with it have, has done the same thing. There, there's and and that's and I want to see you know that, that happen on you know part of the the work that I've done with VRM is and and that I've encouraged. I've not done as much as I'm, I'm basically Johnny Idea Seed here. I mean. You know, I'm not a, the only code I know is Morse, and so I'm not a very good uh, developer in that sense. But, but I I want to encourage development of things that embrace NEA and also, um, you know, bring into the market things that allow city-like things to happen. You know, where where you get increasing returns out of energy inputs rather than decreasing ones. That's his criticism of, of companies as they get bigger and bigger and bigger and more hidebound. Um, in, in, a, in a way that's very much a corollary to what Clayton Christensen says about you know the the disrupted innovators that that they and and the dilemmas that that, that they suffer they they literally can't take in this new input very well because they're too um, encumbered by their own size and and corrupted by you know smoking their own exhaust for so long they just you know, because they're closed systems now I would say that's interesting because that's the creative destruction that. That keeps um, keeps the whole system alive, right? That's right, why exactly. the marketplace is alive, even though any company company can die. And when a company dies, it's not a tragedy. Absolutely, uh, you know, we need the companies to die. I yeah. mean, it, it's uh, it, I mean, it's. And I, you know, living in Silicon Valley for twenty 
from years. I, I got to see this so often. Of course, I see it everywhere anyway. You know, that companies die. It's, you, they, you know, all these people just disperse. And, and, but, but there is a change that the Internet has brought, um, which is, in, in Craig Burton's terms, uh, as a friend of mine, I, I quote a, a, a good bit in the book, that companies are turning inside out. Um, and I think, and, and this is a wonderful thing with, with the Internet, there, there are these things called APIs, which are application programming interfaces, where, and we see the evidence of these in, you know, in something like a, using my, my Twitter handle to log in on another site, or, or, or a better example is a Google map shows up on a real estate site. Well, that real estate site has made an API call to Google, and Google has served up the map. And, but what happens is that as companies turn inside out and expose their competencies on the outside in the form of these APIs, um, it makes a lot more things possible that, that are not necessarily evident in just looking at a website, for example. And in a similar way, we can, and, and he sees that APIs are going to become much more abundant over time. And, but what happens is that, is that companies are inevitably going to have to be less secretive and less um, closed simply because making their competencies available for interaction, for live interaction, is going to make them possibly less subject to um, the failings that, that Clay Christensen talks about. It's possible. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a dream. That's not necessarily reality, but it's, it's supposition on his part. But I think it's, it's a good one. It's an interesting one to noodle around with. Like what happens when you have a, you know, a, I mean, I mean, here's a good example with, with Verizon that I want to get into the, the, the tar pit that we tiptoed around earlier. But, but when I, when I, well, before a few months ago, I wanted to upgrade uh, something with my Verizon Fios. And, and I asked, well, why, why is this only, if you're actually able to give me 50 megabits up and down, why can't I, um, why can't I get that? He said, listen, this is a tech support guy. I said, listen, I'm an engineer. We can give you 100 megabits tomorrow. We can blow everybody else out of the water. But we're not doing that because marketing won't let us. Hmm. Um, and now here's an engineer talking to a customer. That's wild. And marketing won't <laughs> let them. And, and legal won't let them. This is, another, this is one of the frictions also involved in, in the legal thing that we were talking about earlier. On, that having these, these one-sided terms means that we have a whole you know, floor full of lawyers or you know, a building full of lawyers, which is the case in, say, in Hollywood, where they do have whole buildings full of lawyers, um, saying no to everything. Well, when you have the heuristics of a company built in such a way that they can actually listen to the marketplace and react to it in real time through APIs, that's interesting. That, you know, it, where I can give a signal to, to Verizon, you know, look, I'm only going to have, I'm only going to be in this build in this for another year because I don't want to do the two-year contract. That's what actually was a problem. Um, I want to do the one-year contract. Um, so, so why don't you just take my money? I'll, I'll pay more for another year, and and it's not a hard thing for you to do. You could just throw a switch and give me the higher bandwidth. Um, but he couldn't do it because marketing, of all things, wouldn't let him do it. Now, um, I I think because of the way the internet is built, there's a much more rich interaction we can have here. You know, and and this is the cool thing, that, and this is something I'd, I'd love to talk about, which is that something that's come up much more since I wrote the book, though it's mentioned in the book, is is the idea that we will all have our own personal APIs where I can 
I can expose my own competencies. Here's my credit. I'm a good. I'm not a credit risk. I'm perfectly willing to say that. You know, uh, I'm not a credit risk. I'm, um, you know, I might be willing to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a frequent traveler. There are lots of things that I can expose as an API. I can. I mean, a, a big one for me because I'm not young anymore is that I have a very rich medical history that I would love to be make available at, through an API to any healthcare provider. Um, you know, when I was in Washington. You know, I'm, I'm still recovering from a cold. I wanted to ask some medical questions. I want to make some connections there. It would be nice if my API could make available to the medical establishment there what I might be looking for at, any, at a given time. That we can start imagining that stuff out in in any world where the nobody owns it and everybody uses it side of it can open to anybody can improve it and providers can sh- step forward, forward and say, wait a minute, I'm ready to deal with that and I can start offering a business that will intermediate something in this space but that's where i can broadcast you know not just broadcast i just have i have a facility of my own that resembles that of a company uh, in in what i can do with it yeah well that kind of brings us for full circle and we're out of time i think the way i hear what you're talking about and it's such a rich menu of possibilities some of which are dreams some of which are half realities um i think they're going to come anyway I think it's that's the optimist side of me. I think they're coming, and what I see your mission in this book and in your work doing is to maybe speed it up a little bit, help it along. Well, yeah, I, I think, um, uh, and I did. William F. Buckley once said when when he started National Review um, what his purpose was, and he said to stand athwart history, yelling "stop," and and I I see my my role as you know, to stand on the side of history yelling, hurry up. <laughs> so, and and, and, and the, in the sense that I'm optimistic about this stuff, I should say just to complete the thought on, on, on that last one with APIs, that those are part of what are now called personal clouds, and that's something that came up since I wrote the book. I just advise, uh, uh, would suggest to to listeners uh, that, that they look into personal clouds, as, that, as a, that we each have our own cloud. Right now we're here about the cloud, but but the idea that we all have our own personal spaces on the internet that are not grounded in a physical thing, but rather are zones of, of, of competence that we maintain and can program or have others program for us is really rich. And it's, 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 a, it's a, fun, a fun topic to unravel in a, in a future talk. My guest today has been Doc Searles. Doc, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Wes. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.